my mommy doesn't hate me. Because I'm special and unique. Because there's never been anyone like me before. Ever. Mommy loves Martin because he is real and when I am real. What is real? And welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today's episode is so much fun. We are going to explore AI, artificial intelligence. It's a weird title for an interesting movie. Kind of gives you Pinocchio vibes. Pinocchio is featured in the movie. Pinocchio just came out on Disney Plus with live action Tom Hanks as Geppetto. So many Pinocchio references. But I want to start by explaining the movie just in case this one passed you by. It's sort of a uh, under the radar Steven Spielberg movie. Mainly because it didn't get a lot of good... Uh, critical response back in 2001. So the movie did come out in 2001, and there are quite a few people that you are familiar with uh, associated with this movie. So first and foremost, Steven Spielberg directed it, wrote the screenplay from Brian Aldiss's short story called Super Toys, last all summer long, and then the screen story by Ian Watson. And it stars our pal at this time, Haley Joel Osment. Yep, uh, he was coming off his wonderful performance in The Sixth Sense. And in this movie, he plays a robot. And this robot, that they refer to as mechas. Uh, this particular robot is meant to be a son and to be loved. A couple of other names that are associated with this movie. Jude Law plays a sex robot called Gigolo Joe. Uh, Francis O'Connor plays Monica Swinton. And William Hurt is in this movie. You know, rest in peace to William Hurt. But I got to tell you, the one that threw me, because I haven't seen this movie in like 20 years, the one that threw me, Clark Gregg is in it. <laughs> all they get, all they get are the credit of super nerd. They work for William Hurt's character, Professor Hobby. Hobby, what an interesting name. But they that that's all they get. They are all just super nerds, which is amazing. Eugene Osment is uh, one of those super nerds, uh, Haley Joel's father, which I think is pretty cool. So if you haven't seen this one, I do recommend it. It is a great story, not about 
artificial intelligence, even though that's what it's called. It's actually about a story of love and what it means to be real, uh, which brings apart brings up the idea that you find in the early Pinocchio story, right? And and the the story that sort of lasts in there, some something that is not real, but seems and acts real. Is it real? And we're going to explore these questions. I've got a wonderful guest host for you today. So let's jump right into it, shall we? My guest host today is Jim Davies. Dr. Davies is a professor of cognitive science at Carleton University. That's in Canada, not to be confused with Carleton College, which is in Minnesota. He is an award-winning instructor and is also passionate about the relationship between psychology and science fiction. Having contributed to Star Wars psychology, Star Trek psychology, and Doctor Who psychology. He is also the author of several popular science books. He is the perfect person to have on this show. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad that you even have a podcast about psychology and movies. It is much needed in this world. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I am super happy to have you here. And what I do with um, the instructors and psychology professionals that come on the show is sort of get a broad sense of how one uses film in their classes. And so that is the same question I have for you. Your broad thoughts on film and... Do you use it in your teaching? And if you do, how do you use it in your teaching? I think it's really important to try to relate science to things that students can relate to whenever possible. It can be pretty abstract. Psychology is better than chemistry, but still (laughs) there can be some very abstract concepts. And and just about everybody consumes art of one kind or another. So, you know, I think that's a great place to start. And, uh, you know, among the arts, the narrative arts are often the best ones for psychology. Because narrative involves characters and minds. Like you can't even really define a story without talking about characters in conflict. You know, in contrast to my, say, music or paintings, you know, they can be mm-hmm. very abstract, right? But the story yeah. always has psychology, you know? So right. anyway, I only teach uh, one class, <laughs> but in it, I okay. show the movie Memento. Which oh. I, well, it's got 1,300 students in it, but yeah, I oh, only boy. teach one. Um, uh, and I show Memento, which I know you've done two podcasts about. Everybody go back and listen to those if you haven't. Thank you. Um, yeah. And then I have an entire class, uh, you know, an hour and a half where I talk about cognitive science in psychology and psychology of the, the movies, you know, or the cognitive science of those movies. That's amazing. I'm so glad that um, you you take the time to show your students Memento. I take the time to show my students Memento, too. And, and we're coming on that movie being. It really holds up. It does, and it's 22 years old now. Like I've I've watched it every semester, and I love it. It's- oh, I I get I get so much. I watch it every year uh, when I teach cognitive mm-hmm. psychology, and it is it never ceases to give me something new. Um, I I do have a question for you though, uh, teacher yeah. to teacher. How confused are your students after seeing it? Uh, I'm 
a little embarrassed to say, I really don't know. I mean, I have 300 <laughs> people in the room. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like we have a discussion about it, right? So, fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, but I love to see them gasp at different moments. Of okay. It. Now so, that, you know, now that's the fun. Kind of movie. Yeah, that's great. That's fun. Well, no, yeah, no worries if <laughs> no worries if there is that would just be too much. I would be curious though on the discussions afterward because I know my students are like, "What did I just watch? <laughs> what really? is this?" Okay. And I tell them after we're done, I tell them that they can go find the recut version that is in chronological order. Uh, mm -hmm. as far as the event events of the film. And I tell them if they really want to, you know, put all the pieces together to go do that, it's going to ruin the movie experience that Christopher Nolan wanted for you. But, you know, you can if you, you if you need that help. Well, you know, I think that I've, I've seen that. I've seen that. And I want to say that I think it's act it actually adds to it because it shows you the story from the other character's point of view. That's the thing I take away from it. Oh, that's true. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it that way. It's how they see what's going on to this guy. And, and you see they're just manipulating a confused man. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really... And then when you go back and watch it in the way Nolan cut it, uh, it makes everyone a little more sinister, I think. <laughs> oh, I never even... Oh, okay. I'm going to do that. All right. I am definitely going to do that. I appreciate that uh, extra. See? You watch it again, something new. I love it. <laughs> well, let's pivot to our discussion of the film today, which is artificial intelligence, or excuse me, AI, artificial intelligence. It's a very clunky title in my view. Um, but Jim, I have a, I'm curious as to, in your list here, I know I technically chose AI, but why would you include AI in a list of, AI artificial intelligence and a list of movies to chat about. Um, well, it, I'm a cognitive scientist, and and one way that I distinguish cognitive science from psychology is that cognitive science is interested in minds, <clears throat> no matter what form they take. Mm -hmm. So we're humans, uh, uh, animals, mm -hmm. aliens if they exist, and artificial intelligences. So, you know, ideally looking at the way minds work and the requirements for certain processes like planning or memory. Um, abstracted away from the specific organisms that we happen to study. Um, and my PhD is in artificial intelligence, uh, te technically Amazing. computer science, but I did a, you know, a, a artificial intelligence dissertation. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are lots of movies out there that deal with psychological things like trauma and personality and emotion. I feel like if you're teaching a personality class, you know, you could use almost any movie that's ever been made <laughs> to, to get, to get examples from. Um, but for cognition, like specifically. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's that's the nature of the podcast, right? Yeah. Or emotion, emotion or personality or conflict or trauma, like every movie. Right. But if you're right. talking about cognition, like cognitive psychology or uh, like movies that are actually about cognition, the nature of mm -hmm. memory, the nature of imagination or planning. Uh mm -hmm. I think those are harder to come by. And I found when I was doing my review of movies that were relevant to it, um, it, it was mostly artificial intelligence stuff. So, you know, there yeah. are lots of movies with artificial intelligence, even if they don't call it that. But, you know, um, you can talk about the uh, realism uh, and, the, and the methods of artificial intelligence with respect to the movie. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point uh, about the distinction and how many films on just thinking are. Let's what if a robot was doing it instead of a person? Uh, I do agree that that's what you find <laughs> here. But I love that your PhD is in you know artificial intelligence slash computer sciences, computer science, excuse me, because I tell my students that like you know computer scientists kind of came up with this word in the mid 20th century or this phrase and they're like psychologists tell us what we need to do to make thinking machines and psychologists were like I have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> and so that started yeah. this sort of decade upon decade of trying to figure out what thinking is and then maybe we can tie it to um, robots or uh, you know other computer systems like we've we've started with yeah you know before before there were computers before there were computers and and software there wasn't even the right metaphor right for understanding cognitive psychology right so it was just the 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 whole, you know behaviorism like I had a I had one of the last behaviorism instructors at Georgia Tech Jack Marr was his name and he would teach this class and he would like Every time somebody would mention memory or something, he would drop his keys. He would, he would hold his keys up and drop them and he'd say, where's the memory? Show me memory. How much does it weigh? You know, but now everybody knows that like a Microsoft Word file doesn't weigh anything. No. But to say it doesn't exist is absurd. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so now, you know, so I have some I have sympathy for those psychologists of the past. They didn't have the, they didn't have an information processing metaphor to build their theories upon. So, of course, you know, it, they needed the computer and software to 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 cause that explosion of, of progress. Yeah, and I think that flows really well into the main segment here where because the title of the movie is AI, Artificial Intelligence, we do need to talk about how this movie does portray that. And it's not a lot, but what I wanted, Jim, is if for the myself and the audience listening, if you could just describe... Um, what our current conception of AI is. In the real world. Yes, in the real world. And then we'll get to the movie. Yeah, so artificial intelligence is uh, the creation of uh, intelligent artifacts. And by that, that <laughs> by that we mean things uh, that can do things that we would say humans require intelligence to do. Typically, that's things like planning and problem solving, okay. and perception and imagination and creativity. Um, but we design it instead of it growing, uh, being based on genes and then learning everything from its environment. Mm -hmm. uh, we design what it is. Um, now, most people think about computers and I, I think of AI a little more abstractly. I think computers are the best way to build artificial okay. intelligences right now. But I also have an open mind to maybe someday there'll be a different way to build artifacts that are intelligent. Wow. And I want to add another thing, too, because although like a lot of what makes us what we are is what we've learned, mm -hmm. right? Our experiences, we learn to talk, we learn to walk, we learn to do all kinds of stuff. And that's not in our genes. In the same way, the current trend of AI since uh, for the last 10 years has been machine learning, which is interesting because we designed the learning algorithm. Yeah. But then we abs it absolutely has to have enormous amounts of experience. Yeah. You know, we call it data, but it's it's external to it uh to learn from right so you know the how artificial it is actually comes into question a little bit because 
um, with the modern methods, it's extremely challenging to even know what it did. So we don't program the computers to do what they're doing. We program them to learn to do it. And then we have to try to figure out, we have to do psychology on these deep nets to even figure out what the hell they're doing. So, you know, it's like, uh, are they artificial? Well, the learning algorithm was, <laughs> but what they can do, they learn for themselves, yeah. which is not that different from animals and humans, right? That's so fascinating. I got to tell you, the way that you just described that, I'm going to try to bottle that up. And because um, I, I, I <laughs> this is this is like my intro lecture in uh, cognitive psych, you know, explaining the history. And that that definition was really good because, yeah, we just think of computers and robots. And really, there's a lot of ways that we can do this. I mean, I think um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this just popped into my head. Um, could some of the um, mRNA uh, vaccines that have been developed specifically for like COVID be considered something that is somewhat artificially intelligent? I think that is pu pushing the definition a bit. Um, That's fair. I, I, I think you'd have to really stretch it to say so. I mean, like it's, I don't know enough about RNA to say that it's actually involved in intelligent tasks? Like, is it making decisions? Is it perceiving? Uh, I, I th you know, I have a pretty broad conception of cognition. <laughs> so I, I think that our immune systems do perception. For yes. Like the immune system has to do a perception job to know what's a foreign entity, for right. example. So I will grant them perception. Uh, so, you know, what does the mRNA do? I, I would have to know more about what the mRNA does, but I, you know, I'm pretty liberal. That's fair. That's uh, fair. Yeah. It's just popped in my head <laughs> because of you saying that, you know, that you, your broad conception of what could be an artificial intelligent thing, for lack of a better word, um, doesn't necessarily have to be a mechanical robot. Right. Well, we talk about doing DNA, DNA computers. We talk about like, uh, quantum computers, but yeah. notice we keep adding the word computer uh, yeah. at the end of that. But that's because a computer is also an abstract thing that is right. something that does computations. But by that definition, our brain is a computer too. Yes. So, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but basically what I'm trying to get across is that the far future, our AIs might not be made of anything recognizably a computer from today. I like that. I like that. And I think that's that is a good way to conceptualize the end of the movie, which we'll, I think we'll uh, get to here in the next few minutes. So let's talk about the way that AI is shown in this movie. As we said, this movie came out in 2001, and um, there is really not a lot of information that some movies just sort of pile on top of you. As far as this is how this works and this is how this works and we got to make sure the logic of our mm. world is consistent. Otherwise, people are going to be able to suspend their disbelief and it's all going to come crashing down. There's an early scene in the in the movie where William Hurt's character, Professor Hobby, uh, which is quite the name, uh, is describing to a group of people uh, the conception of artificial intelligence that they have in their world at that time. And not lacking in human response. <clears throat> and even pain memory response. 
How did that make you feel? Angry? Shocked? I don't understand. What did I do to your feelings? You did it to my hand. Aye. There's the rub. Undress. At Cybertronics of New Jersey, the artificial being has reached its highest form. Universally adopted, Mecca, the basis for hundreds of models serving the human race in all the multiplicity of daily life. That's far enough. But we have no reason to congratulate ourselves. We are rightly proud of it. But what does it amount to? Sheila, open. Tell me, what is love? Love is first widening my eyes a little bit and quickening my breathing a little and warming my skin and touching my And so on, exactly so. Thank you, Sheila. But I wasn't referring to sensuality simulators. The word that I used was love. And so I was curious um, for your take on this, Jim, as somebody steeped in this world how you thought the portrayal of artificial intelligence in this early scene and then a few other scenes sprinkled about uh, and, and its portrayal. Yeah, so first of all, the movie is completely inconsistent on this. Um, like he says, oh, I want to make a, uh, I want to make a uh, robot that can love or mecha that can love. They call them mechas in this movie, everybody, if you haven't seen it in a while. Um, and he goes up to this uh, he goes up to this secretary Mecca and uh, says, uh, what is love? And she talks about heart palpitations and, you know, and, she, and you get this, you're, you're led to believe that, that the robots are kind of like data from Star Trek, which are these like completely, you know, emotionless beings crunching through their algorithms. And they don't even, they don't even, they can't even give you a good dictionary definition of what it yeah. is. But then, you know, and then they create, they create David who supposedly can love, and this is actually a big deal. But we also see Gigolo Joe express enormous amounts of emotion mm -hmm. really well. So convincingly you know, it, it's, well. It's why why was the secretary so yeah, why was the secretary so crappy at it if if a if a like a, a random sex bot out in, in Rouge City can get it? Yeah. Know? So, you know, it, this is if we're just digging into like the world of the movie, um, what we know is that robots have been around a long time. There's one ro mecha that says he was uh, on Time Magazine like 75 years ago or whatever. And mm -hmm. they are made for specific purposes, but most of them are humanoid. Mm -hmm. in, vaguely speaking, they're all two-legged. Like there aren't any like uh, anything like you would see like industrial robots or anything. And artificial intelligences, uh, except for Dr. No, are, um, are always embodied as mechas. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, in the scene with the flesh fair, we see uh, mechas of different kinds. There's a nanny bot and a post office bot and a war bot. And, uh, or, you know, and then, um, but it seems very clear to me that they, they already have emotion. So, you know, I'm, that's a little bit of an inconsistency with the film. Now, I could talk about the role of emotion in actual artificial intelligence, but that's kind of my read on the movie. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I'll add here to this is something that I found to be um, really interesting when I was reading um, about, the short story and then the conception of this film all the way back when the short story was written 
So Stanley Kubrick was the uh, person who was going to make this movie. Um, but he didn't want to make it in the 70s when he bought the rights to the short story because he thought that a human would not be able to uh, be mechanical, so to speak, act act like a robot in the 1970s. And the special effects that were that existed at the time. Uh, we're not up to the task of creating an artificial being. Uh, and so he shelved it. And then he moved on to other projects and, you know, started talking to Steven Spielberg quite a bit in the 1990s and it ended up in development hell. And then Stanley Kubrick died uh, in 1999, I believe, something somewhere around there. And Steven Spielberg was like, I'm going to make this movie for Stanley. And he decided to go against what Stanley said and cast a real child in the role of David and give give it a shot. So what do you think about Haley Joel Osment's uh, portrayal of this character, David? Uh, I want to add to your story that they actually had a prototype robot built to play David, and it was so horrifying. And uncanny that it was it, everyone. It was very clear it would never work. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That uh, that is terrifying. Yeah. And now we've gotten to the point where I still would argue we wouldn't be able to make a mechanical robot that would do it. We just have CG that's so good that now, if the movie were made today, we'd have a completely CG character. Right. That's what Kubrick probably would have done. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I don't know. Like, I think that having an actor is a lot cheaper, <laughs> but it's also it's also a really easy way to make you feel sympathy for for David. Um, yeah, I think that's a great you know, point. David, David. Um, and again, this is it's a little bit weird. Like when the fact that Gigolo Joe is in this movie and he is so smooth and so like he looks a little bit fake, but he talks great. And then you get David just like bursting out laughing at nothing and acting like a weirdo yeah. uh, as though this, you know, as this were like a way that robots are, why didn't they make him as good as Gigolo Joe at being lovable? Sure. You know, this is an interesting, you know, problem <laughs> with the film. Um, but I think that casting a, casting a human is, is, was a great idea. First of all, like it, it, he needs to look like an advance over the other mechas. So mm -hmm. he does look more realistic than Gigolo Joe, for example, who's got, who's got a, a lot of makeup on, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and certainly more than the more mechanical mechas that are in the film. Um, and uh, but yeah, also like you, David's in almost every shot. Like you have to you have to have you have to have the sympathetic protagonist. Um, and uh, and I think that I think that Haley Joel Osment is. You know, probably the best child actor I've ever seen. So <laughs> uh, I think it was great. Great choice. OK, yeah, I agree about the casting of Haley Joel Osment. Uh, so. My follow-up question would be then, um, why would why would Doctor Hobby think that what he created, uh, you know, something that could love, could be so could end up so creepy, right? David, um, David, in the first part of the movie, the first half of the movie, is so undeniably creepy that I don't know if anybody would love. I certainly wouldn't. So why, why did they make him, why, why did they make him so creepy? I guess is my question. 
What about the given that they didn't have to and, and they didn't have to. Right. Because as you say, Gigolo Joe's pretty smooth, like take some of that code or whatever and give it to a small child. Not the <laughs> sex stuff, of course, but like, yeah, I, I just don't understand the conception. I think it's a mistake in the world building, not an intentional thing. Well, I don't think it's an intention of Dr. Hobby. I, I, I think it's probably a mistake to look to Dr. Hobby for why wouldn't he put in that code? Like, why would he deliberately make him awkward? Mm -hmm. Because I, I just think it's a mistake in the world building of the movie that like they shouldn't have made Gigolo Joe so smooth so that David's David's awkwardness would be like, oh, OK, well, all, all mechas are like that. Um, there but you if go. we really wanted to like give a very generous interpretation of the script, you know, maybe um, he thought that if the kid was too lovable as he was, people wouldn't ever activate the actual love. And he just wants that to be something that people can do. Or maybe now, you know, that we see pictures of Dr. Hobby's son, who basically is Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. So Dr. Hobby has a dead son and he's building his son based on he's I'm sorry, he's building David based on his, his memory of his own son. Right. Maybe his son had some kind of a, maybe his son was on the spectrum. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like I like maybe the speculation. He was, maybe he was trying to make him as much like uh, the original David. Who knows? Uh, yeah. And, and it, the first time you see the movie and they arrive in New York, New York is is uh, submerged um, in this 22nd century. And but this is where Hobby's main uh, office is. And you see this other version of David. and. Um, it's interesting because you don't know if this other version of David also had these activation words constructed because there are a lot of different Davids and like boxes and things like that. So you're like, this is this is other levels of creepy, but I don't want to get too bogged down on that one because my next question for <laughs> you uh, again is an AI based question. And this is regarding consciousness so do these mechas have consciousness in this film yeah this is also this is something also very inconsistent in the movie because that scene is is you're led to believe that um they they don't they have what okay so here's a little we can throw in a little psychology here no susceptors are the the physical mechan me mechan mechanical uh, cells you have that Correct. can detect harm and many animals have them uh, and we um, think that it is possible to have no susceptors and to be able to respond to harm uh, without any conscious awareness. Um, humans do it with many things. Uh, in fact, if you touch a stove, your hand will pull off the stove and your consciousness only hears about it about a second yeah. later. Your, your brainstem takes care, or not your brainstem, your spinal cord takes care of you actually right. moving the hand. So we know that even humans can respond to not what we would, what psychologists like to call noxious stimuli. Um, uh, they can respond to it in a way that you would expect without any conscious experience of, of pain. But then, you know, later uh, in the movie uh, at the flesh fair, there's a robot that asks uh, another mecha to turn mm -hmm. off his pain sensors. Why would he do that? You know, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So, but you know, it's a movie. <laughs> It's a movie. We don't even know if the people were conscious in it. Like, right. This is like one of the things about film that's interesting is that 
unlike a novel, you never really get into people's heads in movies unless it's like a, a voiceover. So, and the only voiceover in this movie is from the, uh, the, the uh, it mechas from the very yeah. end. So, you know, we, yeah, we don't really know who's conscious and who's not, but we, you know, they certainly act like they're conscious most of the time. So this is a tough question. Even David Prelove acts conscious. This is a tough <laughs> question, right? Um, so I'm going to mm. ask in, in your best elevator uh, speech, what is consciousness for the listener? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked because I've been thinking about it for two years. I'm writing my next book on consciousness. And um, so I've been like really into it. And, uh, and I've, and uh, the, the thesis of the book is that we don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> that sounds like a great thesis surrounding consciousness, I tell you what. <laughs> That's exactly how I teach it. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the, and the reason I say that is because um, there are many theories of consciousness. I shouldn't say many. There aren't that many, but there are several theories of consciousness and a recent survey of consciousness experts. Mm-hmm found that the top theory was only thought to be promising by 63%. Okay, that's not very promising. It's not promising at all. So what this means is that there is enormous, enormous disagreement about what the correct theory of consciousness Mm -hmm. might be. Um, On top of that, the theories that we have are very, very different. Okay. So the top theories are... um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into what they are, but global workspace theory, higher order thought theory, and um, integrated information theory are the top three consciousness theories out there. Mm-hmm. And they have radically different predictions about, for example, whether a, a computer or a computer software uh, could be conscious and under what conditions it would be conscious. Extremely different. Yeah. And so... If you go by the field, like I've got, you know, I've got my opinions about what consciousness is. Some, you know, I'm a functionalist, which we can get into later, but I shouldn't be too certain about it. And since consciousness isn't my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. I think that it is the way you should deal with a field that's not your wheelhouse is that you should look at the distribution of mm-hmm. theoretical commitment and, and your belief should be a probability distribution over that. So each theory's credence is based on roughly the number of people in the yeah, field who think it's. Yeah, I agree. That's real. a that's a good way to think about it. So if you've got a um, if you've got a field like consciousness and maybe a topic like the concept of artificial consciousness, and there's enormous disagreement, and the theories don't even agree on what, under what conditions a machine could be conscious then I think that we should have the rational thing to do is have enormous uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I said what consciousness is. I mean, like what consciousness is, is it's very hard to explain to somebody who isn't conscious. (laughs) But I think that we all have a idea. The best way to do it is to just sort of distinguish conscious from unconscious things. Right. So sometimes, um, well, this let's get into psych, right? So sometimes I will say things to my wife while she's typing something on her phone. I'll say, uh, when are we mm-hmm. going to dinner tonight? And she will store that in her sensory memory, her uh, echoic memory. She'll finish typing. She'll look up. She'll listen to what I said in her head. And then she will to answer. Okay? Yeah. And we all know that that recording in echoic memory is uninterpreted. It is raw 
sound to the extent that the brain can do raw sound. Right. And I'm quite sure that he is not conscious of the content of the words. What do the words mean? What was the question I was asking? What was it um, without until later when she actually attends mm-hmm. to it? So this is an easy case. Was she conscious of the meaning of what I said when it was only in her echoic memory? No. And then it became conscious. And so that's what consciousness is. It is the difference between the kinds of thoughts that you uh, uh, aren't aware of and then you are aware of. And the fact that we can have conscious and unconscious thoughts, I think, is the closest thing we can get to agreement on uh, what consciousness is. Beyond that, you have to have a good theory. So to get better than that, you have to have a good theory, and then we don't have a good theory. <laughs> I, think that, uh, I think that's a good conception <laughs> of the way that I teach consciousness, the way that, uh, especially in a class like cognitive neuroscience, where we're having to apply the ideas that we've gathered from inferential uh, behavioral experiments and apply it to what's happening physically and uh, physiologically in the brain. It's a hard task, and I spend a good day slash two days of that discussion just picking the brains of my students like explain to me what you think consciousness is and then i take that and i go okay well we have our class definition and let's so let's apply it to the things that we um that we see every day in life right your example with your wife and hearing your question but not being aware of it immediately um and so my next question for you then is what would you say I know this isn't the same thing, but what would you say would be the difference between consciousness, which potentially robots can have, and sentience? Oh, sentience is a word that gets used in all yeah. kinds of ways. So, um, in in um, so I would say I would argue that sentience is not a cognitive science okay. term. I I don't actually ever hear sentience used in cognitive psychology or in cognitive science with a technical meaning. Um, sentience is used in the popular vernacular, sometimes for consciousness, sometimes for Mm -hmm. intelligence. Um, so that's ambiguous. And then in the ethics world, it means that they're capable of, of having valanced mental states. Yeah. Basically pain and suffering, joys and sorrows. So so that's where I was going with that is a, uh, so is a fly, we might say like is a, is a, is a, is a perch sentient we, what we're asking is can a fish feel pain can a fish feel pleasures yep. uh consciously right. so it's it's consciousness plus the capacity to have the contents of consciousness be valenced so there you could conceivably have a creature that was only conscious of the color mm-hmm. blue <laughs> and didn't and didn't and that wasn't positive or negative it was conscious of blue but it wasn't it wasn't uh yeah. good or bad that wouldn't be a sentient creature it would be a conscious unsentient creature by the by the uh, uh, ethical yeah. definition. So I want to take that ethical definition because that's generally what I use to because the term always comes up in a class like it like I said cognitive neuroscience. Um, so I want to take that ethical definition because uh, ethics are an interesting thing. I'm a chair of our IRB, and so I'm constantly thinking about ethics and the ethics of studies and all of that. And of course, we're talking about human mm-hmm. participants um, at my institution and never, uh, you know, a fish that 
<laughs> is uh, conscious of blue. You you don't do animal board. You don't do you don't do animal no. We're not, not. We don't have any animal. Uh, we're we're too small. We don't have any animals. So, oh, nobody does any animal. So at my university, so this is interesting. Like with all the, if you're doing experiments on insects, you don't even have to apply. Which is wild uh, to me because I, and, and it's not, it, 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 and I've, I haven't been in a project with insects, but I was a, 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 um, a former mentor of mine and his lab created this machine, which purportedly crushed ladybugs and nothing about the IRB review had to do with any ladybugs getting crushed. They did not get crushed. It just seemed like this machine was going to crush them. And of course we have a random affinity for ladybugs because of the hungry ladybug or whatever, or the anger, whatever the the title of the book is. Um, And so that's what they were. They were trying to elicit a reaction uh, from, uh, students and so that was the review like creating emotional distress in the participants rather than potentially crushing live ladybugs right (laughs) so uh, i don't know about the whole insect thing but that sounds reasonable because everything that i've come across as far as animal ethics goes insects are not included it's only mammals right yeah and right so we well and octopuses now but um, oh Interesting. Yeah, you uh yeah, octopuses recently have been made the cut. But you know, again, this is all based on very it's based on intuitions and because we don't have a good theory of consciousness yes. to tell us. Yes. Right? So 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 it's really we have to do but we have to make decisions. This is why I think this field is so fascinating. Um in my last book, Being the Person Your Dog Thinks You Are, I I spend hundreds of pages trying to do figure out the science of how to mm-hmm. be a good person. And it's, it's unfortunate. And the reason I'm writing a consciousness book now is because I came to realize that figuring out consciousness is probably the most important scientific problem that the world faces. Yes, I agree. Because knowing which beings are are sentient, I should say, which beings are in consciousness is required for sentience, which beings are sentient or not has enormous implications for whether we should be colonizing the Mm -hmm. universe, how we should eat like everything hinges on it. It's the only thing that gives the universe value. Yeah. So we're in a position where we've got terrible theories, but we have to make decisions about ethics. And so we just base them on whatever, <laughs> you know? So, you know, you do whatever you want to insects. Yeah, apparently. So uh, taking <laughs> the sentience bit here and applying it to the mechas that are in the movie, uh, AI, would you say that based on the definition that you gave from an ethical standpoint, that these mechas uh, are sentient and therefore potentially uh, require more rights than they are given in this universe? I think they're potentially sentient, but I don't think we have enough information. And what we get in the movie is is somewhat yeah. inconsistent. So this flesh fair is really interesting because in the flesh fair, one, one robot asks to get his pain stuff turned mm-hmm. off. But... The other robots really don't fight for their lives. And and in fact, one of the reasons that the people turn on the flesh fair when David comes out is somebody says robots don't beg for their life or something like this, which yeah. is curious. Like, you know, um, Gigolo Joe makes himself an unlicensed mecha to avoid 
getting caught by the police for the murder yeah. he's framed for. So he has some sort of a life preserving thing. They do run from the flesh fair people, but it's sort of like mm-hmm. half hearted. None of them are fighting. They're just running and, you know, running and hiding and they don't put up a lot of resistance. What will they think of next? See here, a bitty box, a tinker toy, a living dog. Of course, we all know why they made him. To steal your hearts, to replace your children. This is the latest iteration in a series of insults to human dignity. And in the grand scheme, phase out all of God's little children. Meet the next generation of child designed to do just that. Do not be fooled by the artistry of this creation. No doubt there was talent in the crafting of this simulator. Yet with the very first strike, you will see the big lie come apart before your very eyes. like a boy to disarm us. See how they try to imitate our emotions now. Whatever performance this sim puts on, remember we are only demolishing artificiality. Let he who is without sim cast the first stone. It's curious to me, it seems that um, in recent work in artificial general intelligence, um, in philosophical work has suggested that no matter what your goal is as a robot, self-preservation would help that goal. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to be a nanny bot, like there's a nanny mecca in that scene, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, she shouldn't want to die because that's going to prevent her good nanny. You know? I agree. Uh, anyway, so I, we just don't have enough, we just don't have enough knowledge. Like, I, I think that, um, like many, like many movies, um, unless somebody in the movie on good authority tells you they are or are not conscious, uh, we don't know. And in this movie, that doesn't happen. It actually doesn't really even talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I saw that in, in our notes that we p- compiled for our discussion that you had mentioned Turing tests as a test for uh, artificial consciousness or some kind of, you know, imitation game. And they completely passed that by in this movie. I don't think Steven Spielberg had any desires to explore consciousness or anything because I think what he wanted, and this is me making assumptions about a famous director, but I think what he wanted the viewer to just do is ignore the AI stuff, regardless of the title of the movie and conceptualize, as you mentioned earlier, Jim, um, conceptualize Haley Joel Osment as close to a human as the story would allow, while also knowing that he is, you know, a mecca and that he has some of these weird tendencies like laughing. That scene is terrifying to me. I'd be like, nope, taking it back. Get him out of here. So we're we're left with this situation where all of that stuff is ignored, where 
it's in other AI films, it's part of the narrative, like Ex Machina. It's the Turing test is the plot or um, the and I'm so glad you brought up like self-preservation because Isaac Asimov, when he wrote his rules of automatons or whatever they were, uh, whatever he called them. uh, Laws of robotics. Yeah. Rules of robotics. Thank you. And that were that were portrayed in the movie I, Robot, where we self-preservation is against their programming and except for this one uh who's i guess frame i, I don't want to get into that one <laughs> movie is a mess uh, but we have so we're we're not supposed so i guess my point is here that we're not supposed to care if these uh, these machines in ai are real uh conscious or sentient I think we're just supposed to care what happens interpersonally in a, this sort of Pinocchio way. What do you think of that? I suppose, but at the same time, like there are there are lots of scenes of just Mecca's talking to each yeah. other. You know, there's there's Teddy and and David and Gigolo Joe and Doctor No, like long scenes where the the humans are very peripheral. And I think that watching those scenes without thinking that they're conscious makes them really pointless. Okay. So I, I think I think I think that uh, that it's, we see their actors, they're acting and we just assume yes. consciousness. And I think that's what we I was take yeah. seriously that they yeah. were unconscious for the entire movie. It would sort of be like, you know, it would be like watching <laughs> billiard balls knock around. You know, I, I don't even know if we're, it's possible for us to watch the movie like that. But if we were to, it would be I think. it would. Yeah, be- I, that's what I was uh, trying to say. Not that we don't care that they're conscious, um, but that we should conceptualize them as humans. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't get into it. It doesn't get into it. In the in 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 the in the nature of the story. Um and I don't know, does it sort of your final word on this? Does it pass muster when it uh so when we take the whole movie's time scale from this 22nd century to the very end uh 2000 years later, does the conception of mechanical beings and the intelligence that these beings express does it pass muster in your mind in your opinion like is it realistic is it realistic is is it a is it a decent portrayal is it a portrayal that you have significant qualms with i mean i know you mentioned uh the inconsistencies in the way that it's portrayed so as a movie i think that the movie's and and stories are um they really have to adhere to characters and people and this kind of thing i mean i personally think that ais are going to get extraordinarily smart much smarter than we are but i think that the majority of them if there is more than one is going to be um not a disembodied ai but basically kind of a world spanning ai that has a million fingers or something. So the idea that they're going to look, they're going to be individuated robots that have to talk Mm -hmm. to each other Mm -hmm. in English is a little silly. You know, I mean, they, um, I, I, it seems like they would probably all be part of one mind and the bodies would be, I mean, in 2000 years, you know, they would probably create and destroy bodies with nanotech 
by the second every time they needed it or something. And that's very hard to make a movie about. So I don't I don't fault Spielberg or the designers for not doing that because you have to you have to give the audience something that they can understand and get yeah. onto. Um, you know, and when you when you have aliens that are super weird, you can't relate to them. And I think a great example of that is Solaris and Stanislaw Lem's Stanislav Lem's uh, stories in general, but the movies Solaris, where the alien, the point is the alien is completely incomprehensible, mm-hmm. but it becomes psycho for the, the psychology of the audience. It becomes this weird, horrific force, not a character, not really a character, because it has to be past a certain threshold of human life mm-hmm. to count as a character in a story in the mind of the audience. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it, it struck me. I thought they were aliens when the first time I, I saw the movie and not, uh, advanced mechas, but it makes a lot of sense. When did you find out they were mechas like yesterday yeah. or like 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, I didn't put a lot of thought into the end of the movie. I could actually didn't remember the end of the movie. Um, so I'm glad I rewatched <laughs> it uh, for our discussion because the end of the movie was com- something that I had not, I had not kept with me, I suppose. And so I, when I, when I saw okay. it again, and they looked the way that they did with, you know, the typical ovular face, elongated ovular face, and 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 very long, spindly limbs. I was like, well, these are. These are just humanoid aliens, and they found Earth just depopulated, I suppose, 2,000 years uh, after the events of the film. But, yeah, I mean, Gigolo Joe is right that Mechas are going to be the only ones left. But she does not love you, David. She cannot love you. You are neither flesh nor blood. You are not a dog or a cat or a canary. You were designed and built specific like the rest of us. And you are alone now only because they tired of you or replaced you with a younger model or were displeased with something you said or broke. They made us too smart, too quick and too many. We are suffering for the mistakes they made because when the end comes, all that will be left is us. That's why they hate us. And that's why you must stay here. And that they had not that 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 they longed for humans to return, but could not figure out how to bring them back. Yeah, the I think that a lot of people made that inference, that incorrect inference that they were mm-hmm. aliens. And I think it really hurt the yeah. movie's reception. A lot of people thought that it was stupid. To have a whole movie that's very grounded and set in this sort of, you know, world. And then suddenly to have aliens in the last 20 minutes. just like, why? Right. But um, I think that the movie made a mistake. Like you could have just had a, a line that made it very clear that they were mechs. Like, yeah. but it's it's a little you have to read into it a little bit. And then the design, as you said, of those aliens looks a lot like what we tend to think aliens look like based on like Whitley Strieber's communion and these mm-hmm. the gray aliens that are supposedly abducting people, right. which that that design was created by an NBC artist a long time yeah. ago, but it sort of captured the popular right. imagination. I actually have a scientific paper on why that alien has to look like that and not something else, which we can talk about if you want. But 
um, and I ran an experiment on it, but um, Spielberg himself with his movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind helped cement that image right. of what aliens look like in the people's minds and then screwed up by basically copying it with the, the, the serial number scratched off. No wonder. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think that's what I had because I had seen third Close Encounters, you know, before 2001. Uh, uh, not the movie 2001, but before the year 2001 and this mm-hmm. movie came out and um, I was like, oh, he's just returning to <laughs> it's like almost like a Steven Spielberg shared universe where he's like, I'm pulling from <laughs> Close Encounters and it's the guys, it's the same alien. Oh, my God. That's that's what I thought back then and uh just reading more about the story and your notes and then seeing your notes in the context of the end of the movie again i'm like oh of course they're just advanced mechas of course they are this makes a hundred percent more sense than just a random group of aliens so if i could i do want to talk about this study i did because i'm very proud of it basically I, I had this thought that part of the reason that this whole alien abduction narrative is so convincing to so many people, even in spite of there being terrible evidence that it's real, is because those aliens are a, um, oh, what's the word? Um, it's a super, super normal stimulus of intelligent humans. So, um, so the um, supernormal stimuli is a is a psychology theory where like if you like we evolved to like the taste of sugar so we like fruit but now we can make foods that have so much sugar that they taste better than anything in nature um and that's supernormal stimuli jessica rabbit is like a supernormal stimulus of a beautiful woman okay? okay and so the aliens those gray aliens are they're made to look intelligent and if you manipulate any part of it it makes them dumber give them a bigger nose Make them hairy, make them fat, get, make them have like you do anything to them. They get dumber. Wow. So, th- so and so I, I actually like, you know, and so like me, um, I know everybody's just listening, but if you look at a picture of me, I'm like, I look a little bit like one of these. Aliens, oh, and I feel stop. like I benefit from it. Like, I'm not a dumb guy, <laughs> but no, I'm not a dumb guy. But I think people give me more credit. People give me even more credit because I, I match a stereotype of what they think an intelligent person is. Sure, yeah, I'm, I get you. I'm male, I'm tall, I'm bald, I wear glasses, I talk fast, I'm, you know, all these things work in my favor. Um, and in this experiment, we manipulated the the size of the aliens and the size of their heads and all these things and asked people, we just showed them the picture and like, on a, on a Likert scale, how, how intelligent do you think this alien would be? <laughs> how likely could, you know, but if I said, oh, I got a, I, I saw an alien, he came to me when I was in bed, he said, oh, really, what does he look like? I'm like, he was really fat with a long nose and he stunk. He had hair coming out of everywhere and he was snoring. And you're like, that doesn't sound like a space. Like that, that, that doesn't sound like an alien that could create spaceships. And, and you're laughing because you see how ridiculous yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't but hear those at a, stories. At a very subconscious level, the fact that the alien looks like, yeah, it had a, it had a really big mouth and it was drooling. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that the designers of the uh, mecha at the end were sort of under similar constraints. Like, okay. you know, they just naturally yeah. wanted to make, okay, well, if these are 2000 year old mechas, they got to look really smart. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to do? You can't make them fat. You can't make them have big mouths. You know, they have no nose. Yeah. Right. Big eyes. 
Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I I appreciate that. That's uh, that's an. I gotta get. I gotta read this this study. Um. That's a. That's amazing. That is amazing <laughs> stuff. Well, we're gonna take a quick break and come back and discuss the human quote unquote side of this story, the Pinocchio side of this story, with Dr. Jim Davies. Mm. Stay tuned. Astrid here. You may know me as the other half of your favorite podcast host, Dr. Alex Swan, and I'm here to shout out listeners like you. Thanks for supporting the pod, whether that's buying merch, sharing episodes on social media, or making donations. You can visit cinemasightpod.swansight.com to get your hands on previous episodes, or if you're like me, just another hoodie because we live in the Midwest. We appreciate you. Now, back to the show. We are back with Dr. Jim Davies talking about AI, artificial intelligence, 2001 blockbuster-ish movie from Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and um, we we went in the first segment, we were talking about a- AI and consciousness. And in this segment, uh, I want to talk about the overarching themes of this movie, which do still have a psychological bent to them because these are topics that you can talk about in a uh, science of relationships class, a social psych class, and still sort of in the realm of what makes things, (laughs) what makes things things in a sensation and perception class? What is real? So those are the two questions for this broad segment. What is real? What is love? And so, Jim, we were, I mentioned before the break. Let's not be too ambitious. <laughs> we'll solve these in half an hour. <laughs> we were talking before the break um, about how this movie leans pretty heavily into the Pinocchio story. And it's it's kind of funny that we're talking about this movie and its connections to Pinocchio with the new live action Pinocchio just dropping um, on Disney Plus. I hear the first 10 minutes are the tear jerkiest of tear jerkers, like the first sequence of Up, if you're familiar with that one. Rough stuff, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm trying to convince the kids to watch it. So we have these big questions that Pinocchio you know, several decades ago asked, which was, um, you know, am I a real boy? And is David a real boy, Jim? Uh, yeah, great, great question. Uh, so real, uh, unfortunately, has uh, multiple meanings. <laughs> I know. So um, one sense of real is imaginary versus real. And uh, in that sense, that's how we would say, like, Santa Claus yeah. isn't real. Spoiler. 
or you know is god real that's what we mean is it is it is it an actual entity in the universe or is it some right figment of imagination um but the and in that sense of course he's real right he's he's you know he's he's real he's he's you could knock him over <laughs> uh, he was manufactured um but the other sense is the other sense of real is only in reference to some other kind of thing mm-hmm. so if you look at astroturf and you say is that real grass then the answer is no of course the astroturf is not imaginary right so it's a real object but it's not real grass so the question is is he a real boy well that depends on whether count you know he counts as a boy or not. Yeah. And, you know, under some, he's not a girl, but under some definitions he would be. But of course he's not human. But the movie uses the word real a lot and they almost always mean, you know, are you a real human? And the answer is, of course, he's not, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, like Martin, he's like, I'm real and you, you know, you're Mecca. Uh, I like their Orga and Mecca um, contrast that they use. So, you know. Yeah, I, the Orga was a bit of a stretch for me, but... <laughs> Mecca is fine. Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, he's not. He- I mean, w- what do we really disagree on here? He's not human. Right. We all know that he's not imaginary. Uh, he's a Mecca and he's he's like made to look male. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He, I mean, and, and specifically made to look uh, male because they found this family that worked for the company that was making the robots. Right. And they were like, this is perfect test case. Um, the real, the definition for real that I think that, um, David is striving for when he, when he sort of embodies himself as Pinocchio, um, is authentic. Am I an authentic person? Um, in the sense that like, can I, can I be, or at the very least pass for, an entity worthy of regard from the orgas in the world. So can I be authentic in the sense that maybe I'm indistinguishable from a real human? So that's, that's the, that's the real that I pulled from that. Uh, That this talking about like this authenticity and how he should be treated, like whether he can pass for a human is one thing. And I think often yeah. he does, right? Like he, that's how he gets out of the flesh fair. Um, but, you know, whether he deserves to be treated like a human is then we're back to sentience. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, to me anyway, like he deserves moral. He, he's a moral patient. He deserves to be treated right. with moral respect. If he is conscious, is if he's sentient, he, he can have like pain and suffering and joys. Yeah, I, I, I like that addition. Um, and I think where I'm going with the authenticity argument bleeds into David's quest, which is that he just, he wants to be loved. I said regard earlier because I didn't want to jump into the love stuff immediately, but I guess we should because his goal, his uh, programmed goal, I guess is how we have to characterize it within the context of the logic of the movie his programmed goal is to love unconditionally, but he also wants to be loved unconditionally. So he wants to yeah. give the love and then he wants to receive the love. And I think that's what Dr. Hobby was essentially trying yeah. to uh, mimic there um, between two humans. Uh, but of course he's a Mecca. And so 
he has to come to this love idea from a different angle than than humans do. Um, and so the question is, first, what is love? What do you think, Jim? So, uh, yeah, love, I think, is a uh, word that gets broadly applied to, I think, three things. I wrote a blog post about it about 10 years <laughs> ago, but it's, it, it kind of corresponds to some neurotransmitters. So there's like, there's this like lust, there's companion, like a companionship friend kind of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's like a nurturing mm-hmm. kind of love. So um, the way many marriages evolve is that they start off with uh, a lot of lust yep. and um, and then it grows, it grows, the lust declines uh, and then the, the companionship and trust and caring grow. Um, and anyway, but these are there are chemicals for these things. Like oxytocin doesn't make you horny, <laughs> but it does make yeah. you feel nurturing and and uh, right. affectionate. So I think that love. Part of the reason that love feels so mysterious is that we have one word right. instead of three. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of the confusion would go away if we came up with three different names for this stuff. It's like, oh, do you still love me? It's like, oh well, let me break <laughs> it down for you. You know. Um, uh, you know, with this, you can love your best friend without like wanting exactly. to have sex with them, and you can love your dog without, you know. So, um, yeah, that's what I think. Love that's is. a great answer. I mean, well, okay, okay. So it's it's cause so it, it can be caused by these chemicals. I don't think the chemicals are love. Let me just okay. Get that that's out. yeah. That's I fair. think love is a is an information. Love is an information processing right. event. Uh, it is it is it is a state of mind. It is a way of thinking. Um, that we subjectively feel in terms of more basic things like lust and caring and companionship. Right. Now, in the movie, um, Monica, the mother, who is uh, at first sort of uh, in a uh, hopeful but also grief state because her son, her real son, is uh, in some sort of stasis because he has some sort of disease. And so that's why this family is this test case for this David model of robot or Mecca. Um, and he's attempting to create a bond with her. And I, the, the one thing that I pulled from their interactions, because that's only for half the movie, the rest of the movie really is about another adventure until the very end when Monica is brought back into the picture. But the, the the interactions that David and Monica have with each other are um, an attempt to build a relationship with a person that, uh, I use person very broadly there, with a person mm-hmm. that uh, doesn't, that, that didn't make those connections, as you said, you know, with the use of oxytocin. So I, I, I kind of... I kind of see uh, that uh, David was at a disadvantage here because not only is this idea of a Mecca coming in to quote unquote replace my sick son, but also I don't know anything about him. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with him. I don't know how to make a bond with this, with this child. Like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of women uh, just, or, and other and fathers too, I guess. A lot of people uh, like 
holding babies because they get that squirt of oxytocin and it just makes them feel good. And there's not this there's not this connection with David between Monica and David. Yeah, sure, they hug and they embrace and everything like that. But it's not the same as a child growing from a small baby into, you know, a 10-year-old. Yeah, so I think that's clear. It's not the same. Uh, I think that the a parent's love for their a natural-born child that they have from birth is pretty... In, it, you right. can't really compare it to anything. However, there are different versions of love and i think that little girls genuinely love their dolls you know like i i think that they it is it is not a meaningless emotion it's not the same as a parent loving a child but they will cry if you hurt the doll right. they will you know they i think they really do love it people love pets people love a, um 10 year old children that they yeah. adopt and they don't get that early thing. you know they you can Learn to love people and you can learn to love objects. Sure. And it's not, no, it's not the same as a real kid. It's not the same as a real kid. And that's, and that, and the same with Monica. Monica. She um, doesn't love David as much as she loves Martin. That's for sure. I think the difference here that I, the, I think the difference that I'm trying to uh, explain is that it's not the same as, as adopting a, a 10 year old child. It's, can you love a can you love a robot that was meant to replace your child like anybody um and that that question is is answered in this movie and the answer appears to be no cuz it's not it to to monica david's not real real enough to not send him to his quote unquote death i d- i think she loves him but not as much as she loves martin and i don't think it's because he's not human I think it's because he does things that are dangerous and and unpredictable. And I think that if he it had a little bit more of Gigolo Joe's code, um, Martin would have loved him too. And they would have ended up being, uh, you know, it would have been fine. You wouldn't have had a plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would have been a Hallmark movie. <laughs> Imagine so, the different um, kind of yeah, film yeah, that mean, would like, be. I oh, my goodness. We're all just one happy family. I I think you and I, I think to the extent that you and I are disagreeing about this, it's only a matter of, um, yeah, I think degrees. Like we both agree that, you know, Monica doesn't have the same feelings for David as Martin. Um, maybe I think she loves him a little bit more than you do. You know, an interesting data point though, is what the, uh, what they're called the specialists. I think the specialists were the mechas at the very end who, bring Monica back. And the way they describe it is a little strange that her memories are stored in space time. Um, And that's curious. So they reconstruct her body from DNA in the hair, and then they reconstruct her memories from some representation that's out in the universe somehow. David, I often felt a sort of envy of human beings of that thing they called spirit. Human beings had created a million explanations of the meaning of life in art, in poetry, in mathematical formulas. Certainly human beings must be the key to the meaning of existence, but human beings no longer existed. So, we began a project, 
that would make it possible to recreate the living body of a person long dead from the DNA in a fragment of bone or mummified skin. We also wondered, would it be possible to retrieve a memory trace in resonance with a recreated body? And you know what we found? We found the very fabric of space-time itself appeared to store information about every event which had ever occurred in the past. But the experiment was a failure. For those who were resurrected only lived through a single day of renewed life. When the resurrectees fell asleep on the night of their first new day, they died again. As soon as they became unconscious, their very existence faded away into darkness. So you see, David, the equations had shown that once an individual space-time pathway had been used, it could not be reused. If we bring your mother back now, it will only be for one day, and then you will never be able to see her again. But her behavior during this one day that David gets with her at the end, there's no ever asking about Martin or Henry or any of this stuff. Uh, so did they remove some of the memories? Mm. Like it doesn't seem to be completely her, but to the extent that it is her, she says, I love you to David. She treats him like a real son. She um, delights in him. And, you know, as far as I'm, you know, she passes the love dream <laughs> test, in my opinion. So to the extent that those are actually her memories that are d- motivating her behavior in that last day yeah. in the third act, um, I think there is love for him. I think he's under an illusion. I think that David's opinion that he would, he would be loved more if he were a real boy is a bit mistaken. I think that if he were a real boy that did all those things to Martin, grabbed him and sunk him to the bottom of a pool, showed up with scissors. I think that the, it would also be a fraught relationship. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. I agree. I think, um, I guess I'm a slightly more cynical about the end, even though it, it, it the end feels good. Um, and, and as the viewer sort of meant to be like, oh, okay, uh, uh, David got his last hurrah, essentially, because he was under this just supreme quest to find the blue fairy to make him real. And then Monica will love him and all of that. Obviously, a misguided sentiment, even from a mecha that should, for all intents and purposes, be able to compute things a lot quicker and faster unless they're, you know, handicapped for some reason. Uh, in this world, but I'm I'm a little bit more cynical about the end because the end to me represents a fantasy for David, and regardless of what we're told uh, by the specialist and the recreation of Monica and the fact that her consciousness will like float away after quote unquote float away after a, a day of hanging out, I think that was just a bunch of wish fulfillment for David. Uh, And her saying, I love you, did not represent what the real Monica would ultimately say if they lived together forever. It was just David getting one last day from the Blue Fairy. 
Well, so you do you think that the specialist just created Monica out of nothing and and manipulated her behaviors yeah. and they weren't based on her her uh, psychology? Yeah, I think they cloned well, her that, from I mean, her that's hair. A very, that is a very dark interpretation. Yeah, I think they cloned her DNA and they they lied. You're right. So, I mean, there's no I don't I mean, there's no evidence of that. I'm not saying it's not true, but <laughs> right. like, you know, they say that, you know, you know, we're getting this. So basically, you're saying that the whole thing about getting memory from, uh, from 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 space or whatever. Is, well, but then how would she even know the layout of her own house? Like, I guess I guess they could have programmed that in, but it seems like, yeah, I don't know. This is weird. Like, they would have to know a lot of things. Maybe they got it from David. Yeah, they did read his brain. Yeah, so maybe. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's possible, but um. It it is a dark. Yeah, so I, I a, don't. A, I think it's a very. Dark, I don't disagree with you that it's I, okay. a very dark and that's cynical a dark ending. But I interpretation. It's dark and cynical, and I I think you're reading a lot into it. But I do but that I do, with movies. I do also think that even without that interpretation, even without that interpretation, the ending is incredibly dark. Like I mean, just from a human know, standpoint, it's revealed that David two thousand years and all we have left no is from nothing. Like, even even David's even. Even David's standpoint. Oh no, you've got Mecca's. That's fine. Like, the, but you've got um, David. Clearly cares about nobody on Earth except right. Monica. So, like, he just all the humans are dead. Just blows by him. <laughs> right. and all he cares about is getting love for his mother. He's like the most obsessed. All yeah. he cares about is one thing. He's just looking for one thing, and um, you know. And then w- it's unclear what happens. But like, is he going to live for another two thousand years without Monica? Um, does he die at the end? And then what happens to Teddy? Like, it's a very, I, I, I think that getting one more day of love for Montica is for a potentially eternal being, not a great. Ending. Yeah, it definitely leaves a lot of open questions like, wait, they're ending it now. What? No, 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 no. We need to know what David's new obsession is. That's what his quest was. It was an obsession, of course. And he engaged in compulsive behaviors. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting it's an interesting take. And I don't think that uh Steven Spielberg um intended to answer any of those questions. Um, which is why he ends it the where he does. Sort of tie let nice little bow on it. It's very I'm when I read that you thought the ending was dark, <laughs> albeit I, I one upped you on that one. <laughs> But when when you said when I read that you said um, that the the ending was dark, I thought to myself, well, that's actually a f- quite a change from quite a few Spielberg movies. He tends to leave en- endings of his films ambiguous, but on a high note. And I don't think he intended this one to be thought as as a dark ending. But it is truly dark because David is obsessed with Monica and he is obsessed with finding that blue fairy. And he does everything in his power to do so, even diving down into the depths and just repeating it over and over and over again. I mean, this ending, this ending was in Kubrick's story. That's, that's interesting to note. Okay. If he, if he, like he rewrote the script, but like the, the basic beats of the story are all cool. Okay. Um, and, 
people actually criticized him about like sac- making the ending saccharine and Spielbergy, but he was just like, "Hey, that's Kubrick." <laughs> You know, maybe I, you know, maybe filmed it in a sentimental. I way, think he but, did. I think um, I think Steven Spielberg uh, has no <laughs> choice but to f, but to end his movies in like a uh, you know a, a high note. Whereas Kubrick likes to, can can end his movies on a very 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 seemingly high note, but it's actually quite devilish at the end, like uh, Clockwork Orange. For yeah, example. I think that this this counts as that too. This movie counts as that too, because I think if you don't think about the ending very much, it feels happy. It ends with yep. pleasant music and yep. the lights slowly dimming. And then you're like, well, what happens? What happens when the lights go out? Like, you know, um, you know, you know what movie I just popped into my mind is the graduate where, uh, the very end of the graduate, you know, Dustin Hoffman's character goes and right. breaks up this yeah. wedding and inconveniences so many people and grabs the girl and they get on the bus. And they're just sitting on the bus smiling and they hold that for a little yes. bit of an uncomfortable time. I've, and then the credits roll. But then you're just like, hmm, what happens in the next half an hour that they're on this bus? Where the hell is And are they going to make a life now? Like the story's not over. It's just it's it's an impulsive young person yeah. thing to do. Um, but, you know, I like that. You peel a layer back and you're like, yeah, Ooh. I, I agree. I nasty. agree. Uh, OK. One last tidbit that you wanted to share with the listeners about this movie. Anything, anything that we've talked about here, um, go for it. Uh, can we talk about go Teddy? for it? Yeah, Teddy, <laughs> creepy character. Man. Right, Teddy. Uh, so from the Pinot, you think he's creepy? I love him. I don't think he's creepy at all. Um, I think uh, so. Teddy, it, from the Pinocchio perspective, is sort of the Jiminy Cricket character, and he does help. David a little bit. I think he's mm-hmm. underused. Um, he's kept he's kept in the movie mostly to give the lock of hair at the end, um, which I don't think he was. Yeah, he he acts as a very very MacGuffin-y kind of character. Yeah, but David could have easily just That's had true. the lock of hair in his pocket the whole time. You know, I don't know why. And and he there are long sequences where he doesn't talk. David's just carrying him around. He doesn't say anything. In Doctor No, he's just sitting in the back yeah. looking around. Him. Um, and so he helps David a little bit, but not a whole lot, but he's a really interesting. And I think that one of the things that makes him fascinating is the voice actor they used to play him. Um, and he was told to deliver it in a gravelly grown up voice. Like I feel like any other, many other directors would have given him like a cutesy Mm -hmm. little voice, but he's got this like, you know, serious, like almost like in a world kind of (laughs) voice. And, um, it's it's a little it's it's strange, you know, but it gives him a kind of a gravitas, I think. And uh, you know, and then one thing that David does, he he obviously has affection for Teddy because he's always bringing him along, and he he asks, you know, when Monica says let's go out in the woods, he says with Teddy, and then you know, so he obviously he like if he wants nothing more than to be with Monica, why did he ask for Teddy to come along? So I feel like he's got some kind of relationship, some bond with Teddy. Maybe because he's the only other Mecca in the house. But then you read these letters that he wrote to Monica that say, uh, I love you and Martin, but not Teddy because Teddy's not real. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So it's like he's distinguishing himself from the other Meccas on the one hand, but he loves Teddy uh, in the other. And I just I just watching Teddy is one of my favorite parts. Of this yeah, he, I, I say he's creepy, but like I love the way the voice actor played this role. Uh, it is, 
it's not what you're expecting. You're like, at the first moment he opens his mouth, you're like, wait a minute. But how he so calmly takes the lock of hair out 2,000 years later. Uh, you remember when the, the, the lock of hair? I was like, whoa, buddy. That was an interesting thing to get. That was an interesting thing to walk into that room and pick that up. Yeah, I... I yeah, yeah. I'm Teddy, it, Teddy was a an interesting character, if not just advancing the plot along. Uh, the last thing that that I want to to leave the listeners with is um, the pro, the opening narration from the specialists who narrates the beginning part of the movie mm-hmm. is slightly in the middle and then at the end. Um. <laughs> 2001 you know this movie is being filmed you know 2000 whatever when this stuff came out uh or when they were when they were uh recording lines for it i imagine and the whole intro to the 22nd century is what we are living right now with climate change the fact that uh the 20th century 22nd century came in with massively high sea levels drowning coastal cities in hundreds of feet of water and that we are currently on the precipice of that 21 years later i'm just like okay uh somebody was a soothsayer there but you you pointed out something interesting about even even that jim what was that well yeah so it's it seems like it's prescient. I mean, those ideas were becoming, they're coming to the fore around that time. It was sort of the disaster we were all seeing, but um, I looked at the dates uh, because I noticed the twin towers are part of the, one of some of the buildings that are still sticking out. And this movie came out only a few months before the attacks on yeah. the twin towers. So think about how just, dis- I mean, I don't remember this, but I just imagine how disturbing it must've been for people to go to this movie and to see the the, you know, indeed or seeing it after it came out in theaters if only so like yeah 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 so uh just like with just like with a a lot of movies that have the that you know came out before september 2001 um and have the twin towers in the skyline and you're just like oh uh but this one saying you know 2000 a year or almost uh what yeah 2100 years later uh we have frozen covered new york but the two twin towers are sticking out at the top there quite wild yeah, quite wild yeah. and um it's so so i think that so this is part of um the dna of the movie so this, the the backstory of this is that there have been terrible climactic yeah, damages that have caused resource depletion to the point where you can only have a child if you have a license. Right. Um, so this is the market for Davids. Right. This is this is one of the reasons that the company thinks that they're going to make money is that um, these robots presumably use fewer. Either they'll use fewer resources than an actual child, or it's a loophole in the law. But he thinks that people who can't um, get a license can possibly have this now. I mean, I feel like I'm criticizing this movie a lot. I mean, I adore this movie, so <laughs> I don't want people to get the impression I don't like it. But it's it doesn't seem like an overpopulated place. It does not. Like, especially the uh, Monica and Henry live in apparent luxury 
and that, that all their drives are in this gorgeous Oregon wilderness with nobody around. It's like, why exactly are we restricting uh, re- reproduction in this world? Yeah. Uh, tell me about it. Like, there's a lot <laughs> of space. There seems to be still a lot of space, you guys. Uh, not everyone has to live on the coast. Yeah, and even in um, Rouge City, it's it's Rouge City appears to be crowded, but no more crowded than Las yeah. Vegas on a given day. And there weren't tons of homeless people around either. So where's the poverty? Like it's it's a it's a it's a strange kind of thing. But that's sort of how this um, you know that's this is how it's a post apocalyptic movie. <laughs> It's got two apocalypses. Two, two apocalypses, <laughs> exactly. What? One before the movie and one between Act 2 and 3. Well, I want to thank Dr. Jim Javies for joining me to discuss AI, artificial intelligence. Before we say goodbye, Jim, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I know I mentioned some books at the beginning, but... Is there anything else out there that people can find out more about you and your work? Sure. You can uh, get information about me, my books, my podcast, um, social media links at jimdavies.org. That's D-A-V-I-E-S, jimdavies.org. Um, and uh, I have a podcast called Minding the Brain that I co-host with Dr. Kim Hellmans, who's a neuroscientist. And uh, I talk about the CogSci aspect because she talks about the neuroscience so cool. aspect. And um, uh, it's it's doing pretty well and it's a lot of fun. So if you like podcasts, which I know you do. <laughs> I am definitely going to take a, take a look at that. And listener, please do as well. I will link jimdavies.org in the show notes so you can easily find him. So thank you again, Jim, for joining me on this i had so much fun it was fascinating discussion uh my pleasure i'd I'd come back i would love that and listener that's gonna do it for this episode until the next one thanks for listening 